while they're passing out these handouts, uh, I think most of you guys know me. My name's Wes Waddell. Uh, I'm a minister out in San Francisco, California. Uh, I'm married to Ariel. I know several of you know uh, her. We've got three little children. We've got one on the way. Um, I grew up around Arkansas, uh, and so this is kind of my home stomping grounds, even though we call the West Coast home now. And my mom and dad are here, uh, who have been pillars of faith in my life. And the theme of our retreat here is passing the torch to the next generation. And one of the ways we do that is uh, articulating our faith to people that, that don't yet share it. And sometimes even articulating our faith to people that do share it, to build them up. And one of the things that I found very, very helpful... Um, oh, shoot, you know what? Hey, uh, Matthew, would you do me a favor and go get my book bag? I apologize, I'm a little discombobulated. I actually thought I was in the other room. And then I came over and... Uh, found out that I wasn't at the last minute. We were a little bit late getting back, and so I left my notes over there. Uh, thank you. Let me set these up here. But one of the things I'd like to do today is, um, is share a Bible study with you. And I was just saying that something that was very helpful to me when I uh, first became a Christian and, and was interested in leading some of my friends to Christ was having a study that I could use with people. And one of the things that's been neat about the CME workshop is, is we've been able to share a lot of different studies with people. And so this one's actually a new one. And this is one that I've been using in San Francisco. And would you guys believe that, that San Francisco is quite a bit different than Arkansas? People are different there. I mean, seriously. I, it's maybe a surprise, but it's a little different. Yes, thank you. And uh, one of the things that I found in working in evangelism and campus ministry, in which I worked in Tampa for a while with the Strength Fellows, one of the things that I learned down there is people generally do not question the validity of the Word of God. Now, sometimes people will. Um, but for the most part, most people generally accept that the Word of God is the Word of God, right? Then they get out to San Francisco and... You start trying to do evangelism with people there. And you learn that people don't walk in with an assumption that the Bible is authoritative. They don't walk in with an assumption that uh, what is written there can be trusted. They don't walk in with the assumption that uh, you can believe any of it. And so what you have to do often, in addition to living a holy life, is in studying with people, you have to establish the credibility of that which we're studying, which is the Bible. And so what I'm hoping to do today in this lesson is just to give you a, a, some tips maybe, um, and I'm hoping we'll have some time for Q&A at the end, but um, really what I'd like to do is just kind of take the heart of the story of Scripture and share it. And, and, and the neat thing about Scripture is there's a, a, a lot of predictive prophecy uh, and some pretty profound things that God said would happen that actually did happen um, that are verifiable in history. Uh, and, and that's a faith builder. And that will often lead to people believing that they can trust what you're studying. And so I've given you an outline, and uh, this is kind of a rough form. What I'm hoping you'll do with these outlines is, is just take them, listen to what I have to say about this stuff today, maybe go home, listen to the, to the, to the online version later, kind of learn this. And, and I'm hoping that you will eventually learn this study Learn the story well enough where you can tell it to other people, you know, maybe without even using an outline. Maybe just use your Bible, okay? That's where I hope you get. But um, this, this outline will serve as, you know, kind of a starting point for you. And that's, that's how I started studying the Bible 
with people. I don't use outlines now necessarily because I sort of know the stories, but, but that's a good starting point, okay? But let's go ahead and uh, let's pray, and then we're going to just jump into the study, okay? Lord God, it's been such a good weekend. It's been forming, I know, for so many people. There have been really good lessons shared. And I hope that we'll all leave here fired up. But Father, my real prayer is not just that we'll leave here fired up, but that we'll stay fired up. And I know one of the things that really fires me up and keeps me fired up is seeing people come to know Jesus and seeing people submit to Jesus as Lord and seeing people's lives change for the better. And Father, I pray that what we'll study this afternoon in this class, people will use to change people's lives for the better. And I pray that you will give us all an open mind, an open heart. I pray that your scriptures will resonate with us. We're going to look at a lot of your scriptures today. And I pray that you'll, you'll keep us uh, attentive and that you'll, you'll just put this in our bones, God, so that we can share it with other people. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the book of Acts. We're going to start in Acts 1. And um, I've been studying the Bible a lot lately. And I, I came to Harding a few years ago, and um, I got a degree in biblical studies. And uh, now I'm at a school called Fuller Seminary, which interestingly enough is the same school that uh, Rob Bell went to. And John Piper. So they both got their education at the same place. I don't know if you guys know the whole Rob Bell, John Piper thing. Um, but I've been really blessed being out where I am to, 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 to sit at the feet of some of the best Bible scholars in the world. And one of the things I've been kind of grasping as of late is the story of Scripture. I mean, it's 66 different books written by 40 different authors on three different continents and three different languages. But it tells a story. And it's unified in message, and it's unified in themes, and it's just an amazing, amazing thing that God has given us in the Bible. And uh, you guys may not know this, but Acts 1 and 2 are two of the most important chapters in the whole thing. Uh, Acts 2 is not just about baptism. It's not just about community. Uh, it's actually about the fulfillment of promises that God made over the course of about 2,000 years before Jesus Christ was even born. And what this study is going to do is, is show, show you some of that. So let's just get into it. Go ahead and hit that uh, first slide. Sam, I'm just going to read this, and then we'll talk about it a little as we go. In my former book, Theophilus, this is Luke writing, and his former book is the book of Luke, Acts is Luke, part two. I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive, he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So he spoke about the kingdom of God. Notice that. Verse 4. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And notice that question. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, I just want you to know that this is a loaded question. Okay? This is a, a question that tells us a whole lot 
uh, uh, about these guys and, and what they believed. Um, and just to kind of explain this, to understand it, you have to know a little bit of history. Now, back when the world was created in the book of Genesis, in Genesis 1, God is king, right? He's king he's in Genesis 1, he's king in Genesis 2, you get to Genesis 3, there's the fall, uh, they're cast out of the garden, you go through the story of Noah, God is king, you get to the story of Abraham, God is still king, and in, when you get to the story of Abraham, in, in Genesis 12, God actually makes uh, a really interesting promise to this guy named Abraham. Look at this, in Genesis 12, verse 1, the Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people and your father's household, go to the land I will show you. Now here's what we call the Abrahamic covenant. He says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That's a very, very important promise that God makes right here. Uh, now, God is king through the life of Abraham. This actually comes true. He is raised up. He's made it to this mighty nation. Uh, the people are enslaved in Egypt. That's the story of Moses and the Exodus. God is king over all of that. He's king during the time of Joshua. He's king during the time of the judges. This takes you through about the first seven or eight books of the Bible. God is king. And then you get to 1 Samuel chapter 8. And the people come to God through the prophet Samuel. And what do they do? Well, they ask for an earthly king. They want to be like all the other nations around them. Any of you guys who have read the story of uh, Saul and David and Samuel would already know this. And so God tells the people through Samuel, he says, you know, I'll give you this. I'll let you uh, have this king, but it's going to be bad for you. He's going to enslave your people. He's going to take your sons and send them into war. He's going to basically do whatever he wants with you, uh, but sure, I'll let you have him. And so they give him, they get, he gives them King Saul, which any of you who've read the story know that was a total disaster. Uh, it was a tragedy. Uh, Saul is eventually removed from leadership and replaced with who? David, right? Is David a good king? David's a good king. Who was David's father, by the way? Jesse. Jesse, okay. Son of Jesse, David, is made king. He's a good king. The Bible says he's a man after God's own heart. And... God makes an, another promise now. He made one to Abraham earlier. David is a descendant of uh, Abraham. Now he's going to make a promise to David. And he says in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7, he says, Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now that's a pretty profound promise that he makes right there. Your, your throne will be established forever. I'm going to set up a kingdom that's going to be Eternal. I'm going to establish your throne forever. Uh, and this, this promise, this is called the Davidic covenant. There's a bunch of different covenants in the Bible. We're not going to look at all of them. We're just going to look at a couple of key ones here. Which they're all important, but this is, um, this is one we're really going to focus on today. Now, this is referred to all over the Bible. This is referred to, and I think I've even got some scriptures you can look at uh, on this a little later in that outline. But this is a really, really important promise that's made. Okay? So God is king in the beginning. People ask for their own king. They get David. Uh, God says to David, I'm going to establish a kingdom that's going to be around forever, right? Um, do any of you guys know what happened after this? I, I, I just caught a little snippet of, of Carrie and Robert's lesson in here yesterday. Um, what was the answer to the question after 
said the people did evil in the eyes of the Lord. What's the answer to the question that he asked? What's that? A leader died. Okay. And then he was replaced by... What? Okay. And did that go well? No. Okay. A lot of times what happened is these leaders would lead their people into idolatry. And it's around uh, the time of some of these kings that the people are led into worshiping like Molech. And in the worship of Molech, they would take babies and they would place babies on a white hot grill and grill them in worship of this god. They would kill them in a fire. Uh, They would have ritual orgies uh, where they used to worship God. Bad stuff. Bad, evil stuff. God gets fed up with this after several generations. And instead of reaping blessing, Israel instead reaps curses. Because God sends Assyria, who was, if you study history, really bad dudes. Sends Assyria to tear them up. Then he sends a nation called Babylon, which was an early world superpower, uh, to come in. And basically, just like they had been enslaved in Egypt, Babylon comes in. They take over Israel and they cart people off as slaves back to Babylon. Okay? Bad stuff. The Davidic dynasty is dismantled. The people are told that they cannot worship their God. They're told that they have to bow down to the Babylonian gods or face death. The temple is dismantled. The temple that Solomon had built that was overlaid with gold, that had all of Solomon's gold inside of it, was plundered and and dismantled. Your identity is stripped from you. And so these people who had at one time been blessed of God, at one time who uh, were known around the world as God's people, and and the great God Yahweh who was powerful, who could uh, do anything, now are slaves again. And they fall into despair. Now I just got to ask you, is God faithful? Had God told these people that he was going to do something for them? He made this promise to Abraham. He made this promise to David. Does God do what he says he's going to do? Well, the people are wondering, how is God going to accomplish this? We don't even have the dynasty anymore. The monarchy's gone. And so God raises up prophets. uh, And this is this time of the exile, around 600 B.C., this time of the exile is one of the greatest, greatest times of prophetic activity in the history of the world. This is when uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Nahum uh, and Daniel uh, and prophets like I, uh, that followed after Isaiah are active during this time. This is a real big prophetic kind of time uh, because these guys are coming to these people who have lost hope, who are desperate, who, uh, who have nothing to look forward to. These prophets come and they encourage them. And they remind them of God's promises. And I'm going to read, uh, turn over to Daniel 2. um, Because I want to share a chapter with you. uh, And this is one of my favorite stories in Scripture, by the way. I'll tell you a little bit uh, of why in just a second. But we're going to read this whole thing. And this is, um, before I was a Christian I read this and it just sort of messed with me. So I hope it messes with you and your friends. Daniel 2, verse 1. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. That's uh, the king of Babylon. 
His mind was troubled and he could not sleep, so the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Verse 4. Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me, listen to this. They're asking him to tell him, tell him the dream, and here's what he says. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut to pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. It's not, not good news. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive gifts from me and rewards and great honors. So tell me the dream, you tell me the dream, and then interpret it for me. Verse 7, once more they replied, No, let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will interpret it. Then the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there's just one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then, tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. Verse 10, the astrologers answered the king, There's not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asked is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods. And they don't live among men. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death. And men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. Now, Daniel is a Jew. He's in exile. His friends are exiles. They're all slaves. Uh, they made some of these guys that were highly educated. Uh, they would make them advisors and different things, wise men. When Arioch, verse 14, the, king, the commander of the king's guard had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went in to the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute all the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, also called Belshazzar, Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he is asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you lay on your bed are these. As you were lying there, O king, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. 
As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than other living men, but so that you, O king, may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, pay attention to these metals, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the, at the same time and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. Okay, now here's the explanation. You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will rise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything, and as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not made by human hands, or but not by human hands, rather. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and the interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor in order that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the, Lord of, and the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries, for you are able to reveal this mystery. Okay, now that was a chunk of scripture right there. Um, before I became a Christian, uh, I really struggled with belief for a long time. Uh, I really didn't know if um, the Bible could be trusted. I didn't know if, if there was a God. Uh, I just, I didn't know. And, but I was interested in reading the Bible to kind of see what it said, and I, I came across this um, back then. And uh, I didn't know much, but I knew a little something about history. And so when I read uh, these medals, it really made me pause. Because, pull up that next slide. Look at these, okay? Now he told us in the story that the kingdom represented by the head of gold was Babylon, right? What did I just tell you guys Babylon did to Israel? They enslaved them. And, and what did they plunder? 
What was the temple made of? What was Solomon known for? Who was the most wealthy king ever? Who did Babylon plunder? Okay, when we go to Iraq and dig around nowadays, uh, often you'll find old Babylonian gold. Um, which, have you seen that movie? Uh, Three Kings, yeah, Babylonian gold, right? Old gold, right? Probably Solomon's gold, stolen, plundered. Before that, uh, Babylon was pretty much Assyria. They sort of integrated Assyria. Assyria was a war machine. Uh, all they did, whenever it wasn't cold outside or raining, was go kill people and mutilate them and steal their stuff. And they really liked gold. And so gold for Babylon was, was literally coming out of their ears. They had so much gold it was ridiculous. Okay, That's the first kingdom. Then he moves on. He says there's this chest of silver, right? Have you ever heard of Persian silver? You ever heard of Persian silver? Well, Google it if you don't know what Persian silver is. All, all that tells me is you probably don't have a whole lot of money to, to spend on silver. Because if you want to buy silver, you want to buy Persian silver. Because that's the best stuff. Persia, tons and tons of silver, right? Then you move on and you've got this uh, belly and uh, what is it? Um, I've got it right here, huh? Yeah, the bronze. you got the belly and thighs of bronze. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, I was reading the news, and uh, you know Greece is having a lot of financial troubles now. And there was the headline said "Fall the Fall of Greece." Well, above that, there's this big picture of a, a bronze statue laid down on its side. Bronze was abundant in the nation of Greece. Uh, the Colossus, one of the seven wonders of the world, big bronze statue. Uh, the Greek flight phalanx. Uh, have any of you guys like seen? These old movies uh, with Greek battles where there's the battle formation, uh, where there's like the box of men with the shields all over. That's called a phalanx. You know what their armor and their shields are made out of? Bronze. Okay, they had iron-tipped spears and stuff, but even a lot of the components on their weapons were made out of bronze. You hear the Bronze Age? Well, guess who was in power at that time? Uh, then you got iron. Rome. You hear the Roman Legion? Iron. Uh, iron armor, iron weapons, iron uh, structures, uh, iron everything. Rome, okay? So you've got right here Babylon, world power, taken over by Persia, silver, world power, taken over by Greece, bronze, world power, taken over by iron, Rome, world power. By the way, the split kingdom, iron and baked clay, Rome is known as the divided empire. Look it up. Google it. It's on Wikipedia. It's on Wikipedia. It must be true, right? <laughs> Seriously. I read this as a non-Christian, knowing a little something about history. Ah, uh, this had to be written way after all this stuff happened, right? This had to be doctored. You know, for a long time, people thought that the Old Testament was doctored because the oldest existing Hebrew manuscript we had was from around 800 AD. That's a pretty long time after Jesus and stuff. Then in 1947, there's this kid in Palestine looking for a lost sheep, and he throws a rock in a cave hoping to scare up a sheep, and he hears pottery break, uh, and he, he runs across something that's now known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Have you guys ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Okay, this is uh, for those of you who like Isaiah 53. For a long time, Isaiah 53 is all about Jesus. It's a prophecy about Jesus, predictive prophecy about Jesus. I know the crossings and several others use these in their Bible studies. 
For a long time, Christian scholars thought that that was added about 200 or 300 A.D. to the Old Testament canon by Christians, basically just to perpetuate this myth about Jesus. Well, then they find the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they find the whole scroll of the prophet Isaiah that has Isaiah 53 in it that's dated to like 200 B.C. Okay? You want to know what the oldest scroll in the Dead Sea Scrolls they found is? You may want to take a guess. It's not Isaiah. It's Daniel. Okay? So you go and, and, and you look at this and you say that's a doctor. Then you, you, you find out, well, well, no, one of the oldest existing Old Testament manuscripts we have is the book of Daniel. That'll mess with you when you're trying to figure out whether this stuff is true or not. And it gets better. Um, because notice, too, the timeline that he predicts. Uh, he, he, he talks in verse 41. Hit that next slide. Uh, he talks about this kingdom of iron, this divided kingdom, the Roman Empire. And then in verse 44, go to the next one, Sam. He says, in the time of those kings, he just got done talking about this uh, empire of iron. He says, the God of heaven is going to set up this kingdom that's never going to be destroyed. Uh, and it's never going to be left to another people. And it's going to crush all these other kingdoms. It's going to bring them to, the, to an end, but it itself will endure forever. In the time of those kings, he's talking about uh, in the time of this empire of iron. In the time of this empire of Rome, God's going to set up some sort of kingdom that's never going to be destroyed, that God's people are going to be a part of, that's going to crush everybody else, and that's going to endure forever, right? Well, the coming kingdom is something that Isaiah talks about a lot as well. Look at um, Isaiah 2, verse 2 and 3. It says, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills. All nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He'll teach us his way so that we may walk in his path. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now, just so you know, whenever the Bible says mountain of the Lord, Zion, or Jerusalem, it's referring to the same thing. Those are all the same thing. And so not only is this kingdom going to be eternal and it's going to endure forever, it's also going to be established in Jerusalem. Nations are going to stream to Jerusalem. The law is going to be established in Jerusalem. The word of the Lord is going to go out from Jerusalem. So this kingdom is going to be established in Jerusalem. And, and I'm just giving you snippets here. This is all over the Old Testament, okay? Uh, there are also prophecies about the coming king. Daniel, uh, a little later in the book, has a vision uh, of his own in, in Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Daniel says, in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Son of man. This is a title that Jesus applies to himself in the Gospels. There are a lot of other passages in Isaiah. I just did a whole study of Isaiah not too long ago. There's a ton of these that talk about this coming king. We're not going to read all of them. Um, but just a couple more highlights. Uh, Isaiah 11, 1 and 10. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. In that, in that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his place of rest will be glorious. Who was the son of Jesse? What did God promise David? He's going to set up a kingdom, right? He's going to put one of your descendants on the road. Isaiah is harping on it, right? Okay, now this wasn't written in the time of exile, but these Daniel passages were. 
They're, they're, God's going to be faithful. That's what these prophets are communicating to these people in this time of exile. God's going to live up to His promises. God is faithful. And so just to sum up what we've established, uh, God promised Abraham He would turn His descendants... Uh, into a mighty nation who would bless all peoples. God promised David that he'd establish his throne forever, creating an eternal kingdom that would never be defeated with one of David's descendants on the throne. During the time of exile, God spoke through the prophets, reminding the people of his previous promises to them, assuring them that he would fulfill them. And then God spoke through the prophets to tell the people this, this eternal kingdom would be four things. It would be established during the rule of this empire of iron, that's Rome, in Jerusalem. It would be divinely instituted, not by human hands. It would be ruled by a descendant of King David, and it would be indescribably greater than all other earthly kingdoms. These are the promises that we get from the Old Testament. And, and we could plug a ton more scriptures into this, okay? This is just the highlight reel. These are the promises we have from the Old Testament coming into the New. And so fast forward to the first century now. And you've got this tradition of expectation that dates back uh, a thousand years. And you're a little Jewish kid, and you're living uh, under the rule of Rome. And they're not very nice people. They're not very nice. You've seen them do some bad things to your family. And you know that one day, a descendant of David, due to these prophecies, due to these prophets, is going to come along, he's going to be raised up, he's going to establish a kingdom that's going to be better than everybody else, he's going to right all the wrongs, he's going to free all the slaves, it's going to be great, it's going to make everything okay. You've got this tradition of expectation that your parents have, that their parents have, that your great-grandparents have. Go back a thousand years, and you're waiting on this, right? And every time a Roman soldier is mean to you, every time you see them beating one of your brothers or your sisters or your friends or your neighbors, every time you hear about one of those teenage girls being raped, Every time you hear about a crucifixion of one of your brothers, because they didn't crucify their own citizens, they only crucified those that weren't. Is this gone? Yeah. <laughs> Every time you hear about this, you think about this coming king. And you think about this coming kingdom, because it's coming. And you can't wait, because you hate these people so much. You want them just to all die and go to hell. And then a guy comes along in Luke 4. Jesus. And he does something like this. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. But look at this. This is a quote from Isaiah 61, I believe. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And then he goes around the countryside, and he starts performing miracles. 
What are you going to think? What are you going to be thinking? What's going to come next? You're thinking, oh, we're about to kill some people. Seriously, that's what you're thinking. And then he says things like what he says in Matthew. He starts his preaching in Matthew, I believe, and I, I did not verify this. I'm going from memory, and that's dangerous. I believe this is the first thing he says in Matthew in preaching. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now you're thinking to yourself, it's on. We are about to do this. And that's why you got things happening like what you see in John 6. Now this is after the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, by the way, you have probably been told by your Bible class teachers in your churches that when Jesus fed the 5,000, uh, it only said that he fed 5,000 men because they didn't count women and children. And there actually were women and children there, so there were probably 20,000. Well, they're wrong. There were just 5,000 men in this crowd. Because when the Jews wanted to start an insurrection, historically, they would go out to the desert with their leader. They would rally the army with the fighting men. By the way, the Greek word that's used refers to young men, meaning fighting men. They would rally the men, and then they would go back in and they would kick some butt. They'd done this before. This wasn't new. And so 5,000 men go with Jesus out into this desert, following the guy that they think is going to be their king. And uh, verse 14, he feeds the 5,000. After the people saw this miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who's coming to the world. Jesus, look at this, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to the mountain by himself. They didn't get it, right? They thought their king was going to be a military leader. By the way, um, have you ever been confused when you're reading the Gospels and Jesus does this great miracle that he tells the people, now don't tell anybody about this. You know why he did that? Because he didn't want them going and telling other Jews because he was afraid that the Jews were going to come and make him king by force. You may notice when he goes to the Gentiles, he says, go tell everybody. Like when he goes and heals the guy with legion, the demons, that was on an aisle that was full of Gentiles, hence the pigs. Uh, he tells them, go tell everybody what has happened. Because he was a Gentile. Okay, Clear up a little confusion there. He knows the Jews aren't going to get it. These people don't get it. The, the, the people in the crowds, they just don't get it. They think he's going to go you know, kill people. Uh, even his closest followers that were with him during his ministry didn't get it. Look at Matthew 18. Now this is his, his friends. His closest confidants. His partners. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This had to be confusing. Because they're thinking, he can't even swing his sword. What does he... This is confusing to them. And he doesn't go on and give them a greater explanation. I think he just wants them to experience this for themselves. And then you come to like Matthew 20. And this is kind of funny to me because James and John are known as the th sons of thunder. I kind of picture these... You watch that show Deadliest Catch? Uh, I kind of picture deadliest catch guys with bad tippers, and then they get their mom to come ask Jesus to make them these guys. This is kind of interesting. Uh, but I'm easily amused. So, Verse 20, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. 
You don't know what you're asking, Jesus answered. In other words, you don't know what you're talking about. Because you're envisioning a palace, and you're envisioning an army, and you're envisioning weapons, and you're envisioning bloodshed, and you're envisioning uh, power in, in a political form, and, and, and wealth, and riches, and all these things. You don't get it. And see, they ask Jesus for things like this because they want power. They really want power. And Jesus is saying, you guys just don't get it. And by the way, I really think this is why Judas betrayed Jesus. I don't think it was because he hated Jesus. Judas was one of these guys who wanted power. And so he goes and, and, and he betrays Jesus by having him arrested because I really believe Judas thought if, if he could just force Jesus' hand and maybe cause him to act, then all this cool stuff would happen and, and he would get a seat in the palace and all the riches and, and all this stuff. But then he sees that it's not going to go down that way. And you may notice Judas doesn't jump up and down and rejoice. He goes and tries to take back what he had done. Uh, and then he um, goes and kills himself when he sees it's not going to happen. That's not the actions of a man who hated Jesus. That's the actions of a man who really regretted what he had done. I think his plan just didn't work. Um, but if you, if you study the Gospels, guys, it chronicles this misunderstanding. It chronicles... Uh, all of these people who just didn't get Jesus, they didn't get the kingdom, and, um, and that's the way it is. So, so going back to Acts now, they meet together and they ask him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Right? Even now, they don't get it. Even now, after the resurrection, they still don't get it. They still wanted power. But what... Jesus is going to give them the kind of power He's going to give them. It's going to be a little different, okay? Look at uh, verse 7. He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after He said this, He was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid them from their sight. Now I want you to notice this. They're wanting power, but the kind of power they're wanting is the kind that leads to palaces and riches uh, and, and political influence and all this stuff. And Jesus is saying to them, I'm going to give you power, but the kind of power that I'm going to give you isn't the kind that leads to all this stuff that you guys are lusting after. The kind of power that I'm going to give you is going to come in the form of supernatural Holy Spirit power, and it's not going to empower you to go kill Romans. What's it going to empower them to do? To be His witnesses, right? To be His witnesses in Judea, Jerusalem, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. That's the power that Jesus gives us. That's the power He gives you and I. And it may not look like it to those who don't have trained eyes to look at things like God looks at things. It may not look like that's much power. But those of us who believe the gospel, there's nothing more powerful in the world than the gospel. And so Jesus is actually going to make these guys more powerful than anybody else because they know Jesus. Right? And this is cool too. He flies in front of them. And, you know, they're probably thinking, I, I saw you walk on water, I've seen you raise dead people, I've seen you heal blind people, but this one is new. Okay, and so they're staring at the sky, uh, and in verse 10 it says, um, they were looking intently up to the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. 
Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here and look at the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you up into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. So they're shaken out of their stupor when these angels come, and they basically tell them he's coming back, right? He's going to come back. Um, and then they go back to Jerusalem. And there's a couple more things that happen in uh, chapter 1, but we're going to skip down to chapter 2 now. And so look at Acts 2, verse 1. And as I mentioned before, this is really a big deal, because this is like a climactic section of the Bible that really helps tell the whole story, okay? When the day of Pentecost came, they were all in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Okay, so this is pretty crazy. Now the day of Pentecost, uh, this was a a holiday celebrated 50 days after uh, Passover. This was the holiday where they celebrated the harvest. And so what good devout Jews from all over the known world at that time would do is they would take the, the best of their wheat harvest. And if you were a good Jew, you had to take it to Jerusalem, to the temple, because that's where the offerings were made. And so the, this Jerusalem is filled with people at this time because it's this holiday, and these are all good Jews. Um, and so in verse 5 it says, Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Okay, this would be like somebody from, I don't know, southern Mississippi going to San Francisco and speaking Mandarin, which would be really weird. Um, Of course, anyway, I won't say any more. And they say, then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. So they're worshiping God. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, ah, they just had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven in verse 14, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only 9 in the morning. Now, he's making a funny there. Uh, we hadn't had time to get drunk, which, if you, if you know anything about Peter, this is one of the few times he opens his mouth and doesn't stick his foot in it. Um, whenever you say something and it's good enough to get in the Bible, and the very next line is he didn't know what he was saying, uh, you've made a boo-boo. And so he actually has a little wit here, and there's probably some laughs. Um, but now he's going to get serious, and he's going to appeal to the Old Testament. Um, And he says in verse 16, No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. Now, just so you know, uh, Joel was not a happy book. It was written about a plague of locusts that were going to come and destroy Israel because they had fallen into unfaithfulness back in Old Testament days. And chapter 1 of Joel is basically all about this locust plague and how all the crops are going to be taken out and there's going to be famine in the land, there's not going to be enough to drink, there's going to be drought, rain's not going to come. It's going to be really, really bad for Israel and a lot of people are going to die and this is going to go that way for a few years. Well then in chapter 2, 
you see a glimmer of hope because he starts talking about what's going to happen when the people repent. Every time the prophets are sent to someone, it's to help them repent, by the way. Uh, that's, that's an act of grace, just the sending of a prophet is an act of God's love. Um, and so Joel tells them in chapter 2, you are going to repent, and eventually God is going to make the locust go away, and he is going to send rain, and your storehouses that were empty before are going to overflow with food, and your cisterns and your wells that were dry before are going to overflow with water, and so it's actually going to be better for you, Israel, than it was before after you repent. But then Joel goes a step further, and he says... Uh, not only is God going to restore you in the short term, there's also going to be something even better that's going to come later. He says in the last days, He's going to pour His Spirit out on all people. And so God's not just going to send physical rain that's going to cause your material storehouses to overflow. He's also in the last days or afterwards uh, going to send spiritual rain that's going to cause your spiritual storehouses to overflow. Okay, that's the message of Joel. Now what Peter is saying to these people is, yeah, you may, may make fun of us and say we've just been drinking, but what you need to understand is we haven't been drinking. This is actually a fulfillment of this Old Testament prophecy made by Joel hundreds of years ago. What is being poured out in front of you in your midst is a miracle of God. And so now he has the people's attention. And he goes a step further. He says uh, in verse 19, this is a continued quote of Joel. God says through Joel, I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What had happened seven weeks before when Jesus was crucified and when he died? Big earthquake. Suns darkened. Uh, ancient almanacs record a solar eclipse around the time we believe Jesus died. Very likely that the moon rose red that evening. What had happened just a few weeks before was also fulfillment of this Old Testament prophecy of Joel. Peter's saying what's being poured out here is, is God's intention and God's will. You need to listen up. People are really paying attention at this point. By the way, whenever you study the New Testament and evangelists or apostles are dealing with Jews, they'll use the Old Testament a lot. Because the Jews really respected the Old Testament. When they're dealing with Greeks or people that didn't really respect the Old Testament, they won't use it as much. But when they're talking to Jews, they use it a lot. That's, Matthew was written to Jews. That's why there's so much Old Testament. So he meets people where they are. So these people are listening because they respect the Old Testament. And Peter's going to preach the first gospel sermon to them right now. And it starts in verse 22. This is where he gets into this proclamation of Jesus as the king. He says, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. So guys, Jesus didn't just proclaim authority, he demonstrated it, right? He came and he was able to do all these miracles and all this stuff that should have told you he was from God, but then you killed him. Now, you did that by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. Uh, Romans 8.32 says, God the Father did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. It says in Isaiah 53.10, it was God the Father's will to crush him and cause him to suffer, to make his life a guilt offering. Okay, that means payment for your sins. He did this on purpose. 
because He loves you. He did this because He wants you to be saved. Okay? God set purpose and foreknowledge. This was done. But what if you're the people that did it? How are you going to feel? What if you're the ones that were in the crowd yelling, crucify him, threatening to riot that caused Pilate to go ahead and crucify him? What if you're one of those people? And you're hearing this now. And then you hear that God raised him from the dead. Okay, so you killed him, but he didn't stay dead. How are you going to feel? Not very good, right? They're going to be convicted of their sin in this right here. And he's going to keep adding to this. He's building an argument. And he's going to appeal again to the Old Testament. Now, he's going to build this case for believing that Jesus is the Messiah or the King. And, and uh, another little side note here. Um, Peter didn't come up with any of this on his own. These appeals to the Old Testament. He didn't come up with any of this on his own. Uh, it says at the end of the Gospel of Luke, which is Acts part 1, uh, in Luke uh, 24, Jesus said, This is what I told you while I'm still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their mind so they could understand the Scriptures. Okay, Jesus actually did a Bible study with his apostles before he ascended into heaven and said, Here's all the Old Testament that applies to me, right? So Peter's going to share some of that. And um, he's going to quote Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11 and 25 through 28 here in uh, Acts 2, 25. This is David talking. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand and I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope. Verse 27, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he would not abandon him to the grave, nor did his body, uh, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we're all witnesses of the fact. So he goes back and he says, yeah, these prophecies of David, right, they're fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Davidic covenant was made with Jesus Christ. He's referring back to that. And then he goes uh, in 32 that he raised Jesus up after, after his death, and he says, we're all witnesses of this. This isn't just something we're making up. I actually saw him. I ate with him. I spent time with him. I talked to him. I'm a witness. And if you, you know how Peter died... Crucified. You know how all the apostles died? They died because they wouldn't shut up about this guy who died but wouldn't stay dead. They were witnesses. They just couldn't get him to stop. And so this strong case has been made. But then he takes it even further and he says in verse 33, Exalted to the right hand of God, he's received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said... The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Verse 36, therefore, now when you see the word therefore in scriptures, you ought to circle it because he's about to sum up everything he's been saying. Therefore, all, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus. Now listen to this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Put yourself in their shoes. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Lord, God, Master, Owner. 
All the authority of God has been given to him. All the wrath of God and all the blessing of God is in his hand and at his disposal. Lord. And then he says, Christ. You know what Christ means in Greek? Anointed one. It means the king. It's a title. So the coming king that they had been waiting on for over a thousand years came in the form of Jesus. And not only did they not recognize him, they killed him. And not only did they kill him, they killed him in the worst possible way they could kill a person in Roman crucifixion. And he didn't stay dead. And that's bad enough. Not only did he not stay dead, he flew away into heaven where he was sitting at the right hand of God with all the power of God, all the blessing and wrath of God. He just made fire come down and fill a room and it blessed people, but could he make some that would maybe hurt? What are you thinking at this point if you're in this crowd? What do you think they're thinking? Do you think they're maybe a little scared? Do you think they're maybe feeling just a little bad about all this? We killed him? Seriously? It was the carpenter's son? They're not feeling too good. And so what I think verse 37 is, is the biggest understatement that you can find in the Bible. Because what it says is, uh, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? You can just read over that if you want to. But I think these people were cut to the heart. And I think they got that on their knees and tore their clothes and put dust on their head and said, brothers, through tears, what should we do? Like, is there any hope for me? Is there any hope? And one of the crazy things about God is verse 38. Because he could have said, you're done. I'm going to kill you. But he says, repent and be baptized. And I'll forgive you. And I'll give you the spiritual reign. Just like everybody else. <sighs> Sorry. It's not just about baptism, guys. This is the story of God working in the world. And the same Jesus that prayed for the people who were torturing him in front of his mother is the one who inspires Peter to tell these people later, just repent and turn to me and have your sins washed clean and I'm going to give you a little piece of me to live inside you forever. Do you think these people expected that? I really don't think they did. There's some pretty crazy stories in the Old Testament when God gets mad. Could have gone either way and been just. But he shows some grace. And there's some people who will tell you, well, that was just for them back then. It doesn't really apply to us. But then um, they need to read the next verse. Because the really cool thing about this 
Because this wasn't just for them. This promise is for you. It's for your children. It's for all who are far off. It's for all whom our Lord God will call. Even today. So if you're an enemy of God, this promise is for you. It's for everybody. Who does all leave out? Doesn't really leave a whole lot of room to be left out, right? All. It's for everybody. Now, do you think these people were grateful? You think they were grateful? I think they probably were. And uh, so they respond, and in verse 40, it said, With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted this message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Now, just imagine the gratefulness that these people felt. Now, a lot of people will do lessons on uh, Acts 2, 42-47, because it's like the picture of the first church, and it's the ideal community. And they'll just focus on those verses, and they won't really lead up to it. Um, and they'll take you through and show you all these principles that you should follow. Let's just read it real quick. 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe. Many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now you can go to conferences, you can read books, you can do all sorts of study on Acts 2, 42-47 and totally miss the point. These people were devoted to God and taking care of one another and being kind and compassionate and people were being saved because this was a community of people that were really, 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 really grateful to God. He totally could have just wiped them out and been completely just in doing so. But he shows them grace and their response to God in grace, to his grace is to live in this awesome community where they're getting together every single day. And they're meeting together and, and studying the Bible together and they're praying together and they're selling their possessions so that they can help out other people that are in need, that are part of their community. And, and this community is so cool and so loving that other people want to be part of that. They see that love. But you've got to understand, their love and all of that stuff was fueled by their gratefulness. And you want to know why some churches are dead and some churches are alive? Because some churches are grateful and some churches aren't. You want to know why the best campus ministry kids, for the most part, are uh, those that are one from the world? And some of the ones we have the most trouble with are those who grew up in the church? And I was one of the ones that grew up in the church, by the way. I just went nuts for a few years. Um, because they're generally more grateful. Seriously. Ask any campus minister. They may not have put their finger on it, but let me help them put their finger on it. That's why. It's gratefulness. And so these people live out of their gratefulness. Um, you know the really cool thing? That's the kingdom of God. Hit that next slide, Sam. Old Testament promises. God promised Abraham he'd turn his descendants into a mighty nation. He'd bless all peoples. Where did Jesus come from? Abraham? Okay. David? Eternal king? Eternal kingdom? Jesus? 
Uh, time for the exile. Go to the next one. Kingdoms established when? During the Empire of Iron. Rome, first century. Okay. Uh, divinely instituted, not by human hands. What happened when the kingdom was established? What came down from heaven? Did, did, did any of you guys do that? God did that, right? Not by human hands? Uh, ruled by a descendant of King David. We got that one. Jesus. Indescribably greater than all earthly kingdoms. Amen. Who said amen? Make a case. Why? Because this is a kingdom that lasts forever. We're going to die if we worship. <laughs> so the United States could last forever. Afraid it can't. It's going to end when the world ends. Oh, yeah? Oh, well, that's true. But. Uh, <laughs> a lot of literature out there today on the kingdom of God. Um, we were talking about this in our camps ministers meeting yesterday. Um, a lot of people instantly correlate kingdom mission with uh, kind of the purpose of it is, is, is bringing heaven to earth, um, making the world a better place, uh, which is all true, by the way. Um, Feeding the poor, taking care of the homely, uh, homeless. <laughs> you need to take care of the homeless too. <laughs> the church really takes care of me. <laughs> God gave me Ariel. I don't know how, but it happened. Um, social justice. You know, the United States does a pretty good job with all those things. I mean, we've still got homeless people, but, you know, we're, we're one of the most benevolent nations that has ever existed. We, we give more money away, and we take care of more people uh, than just about anybody. Um, you don't need Jesus to take care of the poor. You don't need Jesus to be concerned with social justice or injustice of any kind. Um... You know what you need Jesus for that no other earthly kingdom can help you with? Who are the enemies of Jesus? When, when the Bible says that God made his enemies a footstool for his feet, who were those enemies? Was it the Romans? No. Jesus' enemies were sin and death. Jesus didn't come to defeat the Romans. Jesus came to defeat sin and death. He didn't come just to defeat the enemies of the Jews. He came to defeat the enemies of humanity. There's no other king that can defeat sin and death. There's no other kingdom in which sin and death has been defeated. We've got to be real careful that we don't get characteristics of the kingdom mixed up with the mission of the kingdom. And you guys want to know what the mission of the kingdom is? It's to call people under the lordship of the king. You know what the Holy Spirit was given us for? It's for a lot of things, but what we've studied today. The Holy Spirit was given us to give us power to tell people about Jesus. And to call people under the lordship of the king. Because there's only one. And the kingdom is indescribably greater than all other kingdoms because sin and death has been defeated. Because there's only one king and there's no squabbles over who's in charge. There's no um, elections. There's no doctors. 
We don't need airbags in our cars. We don't need uh, 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 lawyers. We just need Jesus. And what we have as our mission on this earth, you, you want to know the kingdom is made to expand? You know, we're, we're to call everybody into this kingdom? Um, one day, the king's going to come back, and everybody who's part of his kingdom on earth is going to join him in the new heaven and the new earth. When you die, you're going to go to heaven. But then someday, Jesus is going to come back, and he's going to make everything right here on the earth. The Bible teaches that it's going to be transformed. It's going to be restored. It's going to be, uh, it's going to be all good. And there's not going to be any tears, and there's not going to be any death, and there's not going to be any sin. And we're going to be all together, and there's going to be this great feast. And we're not going to be talking about the politicians, or who was the wealthiest, or any of these things. We're, we're only going to remember the things that were done on this earth in the name of Jesus Christ. That's the only things we're going to talk about in heaven if we, if we start reminiscing. Because nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. And so this kingdom is great. And if you study uh, the book of Acts, if you keep following it out, the kingdom's established in Jerusalem. It goes out from Jerusalem and it spreads. And you and I are part of that story because we keep spreading it today. Right? And so, the question then is, is God faithful? He has a pretty good track record, doesn't he? I like to end with this one uh, for this portion. Then we'll, how much time do we have? What time are we supposed to be done? Okay, we'll have some extra time. Um, Acts 1.11. Is God faithful? What does this say? He's coming back. And if you study Revelation, when he comes back, he's not coming in humility, guys. He's coming in glory. And he's described not as a carpenter's son who was born in weird circumstances that caused the rumor mill to spin. He's going to come back riding on a white horse with a sword drawn, with his eyes ablaze like fire, all tatted up on his side, with it saying, Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And he's going to swing his sword, and he's going to kill everybody that didn't in part of his kingdom. Um, unless you're Rob Bell. <laughs> Just kidding. Patrick, Patrick Mead uh, told me to be nice today in his lesson, so here we go. Um, so that's it. That's the basic study. And this is weird doing this, by the way, because normally you sit down and have a conversation with somebody and go through these scriptures, so this is really weird. I hope I didn't put too many of you to sleep, because uh, I know it's right after lunch. Uh, do you guys have any questions about this? And then we're going to look at something else. Yes, ma'am. You talked about the uh, new heaven and new earth. Like, what a, I've never like, heard that before. Like, what's about, like, what is that all about? New heaven and new earth. It, it's talked about in Romans and other places. Um, that's hard for me to answer in a, in a short time. But it's basically the Bible teaches that God will one day restore all things. And there's some debate as to whether that's going to be here or some other place uh, that you fly off to. And, um, but I, I think most people believe, most scholars who kind of study this issue believe that Jesus is going to come back someday. And uh, we're going to be resurrected and we're going to have resurrected bodies. Um, and we're going to live here on earth in our resurrected bodies with Jesus as King. Um, and it's going to be not like this earth. It's going to be much better, like the earth as it was 
created to be. So like people from heaven? Yes. Okay. Yeah, pretty much. You got it. So it's good to follow Jesus. That's that's the thing. Whether it's here or there, it's good to be with Jesus. Yes. Um, well, it just depends on the person. Um, I know in, in Sanford, can we go ahead and start passing that other handout out, by the way? Um, what's the main hurdle? I'm sorry. She asked, what's the main hurdle you run into with other people? Um, it, it varies from person to person, but ultimately it's just sin. Is that a, is that a smart alecky answer? Okay. Serious. I mean, it, it's all different issues, but man, it's always sin. Anybody else? Okay, they're going to be passing out another handout to you. I need to grab one, by the way. Can I have one soon? Uh, this is another little tool that I use. Um, have any of you guys, I know the academic world's kind of not nice uh, to Christians nowadays. Have any of you guys ever been sitting in a class or... Um, you've had some friends you've been talking to who said, man, you can't trust the Bible because it's just been rewritten. It's been rewritten over the years. Have you ever heard that? Yeah, you guys dealt with that? Professors in college, you go to community college, uh, you hear this all the time. It's so dumb. Because it, it hasn't, and we know that it hasn't. Um, you guys can read this on your own, but... There's three criteria that historians use to evaluate the credibility of historical documents. And this is all historians. This is secular and you know, any branch of history. The number of manuscripts available, uh, the time interval between the date of the original writing and the composition of the copy, and the quality of the manuscripts. That's how we determine what's going to go in the history books and what isn't. Uh, now, we don't have any of the original copies of the Bible. None. None exist. You want to know why? Because they were written on something called paper. And paper doesn't last forever. Uh, believe it or not, they did not have uh, digital copies of anything back in the first century. And so, uh, by, this is why Google is trying to digitize all the books in the world. Because they know if they just sit there, they're going to go away. They're going to turn to dust. And so we have copies of the Bible because copies had to be made. Uh, they were written on perishable pieces of paper. But, but look at this, this chart down here. And just to explain this. Um, everything that's in your history books, in your college, that your history professor who tells you you can't trust the Bible because it's been rewritten thousands of times, uh, will tell you is accurate about Caesar, is gotten from ten copies of something written by Caesar uh, in 100 to 44 B.C. The earliest copy we have, it was originally written in 144 B.C. The earliest copy we have is from 900 A.D. Okay? And we only have ten copies. There's a thousand years between what was written by Caesar and then the earliest copy we have. You keep going through here, Plato. Uh, everything we know about Socrates, we got from Plato. Because he wrote down things about Socrates in 427 to 347 B.C., but the earliest copy we have of his writings is from 900 A.D. That's 1,200 years in between. And we only have seven copies. Okay? Everything in your history books about Socrates is from those documents. 
Uh, and you keep going, I'm not going to look through all of these, but you guys get the idea. Now the best uh, document of antiquity, besides the Bible that we have, is Homer. That was written in 900 B.C. The earliest copy we have is from 400 B.C. And there's 643 copies. That's only 500 years. That's considered by historians the best one. Barring the Bible. Okay? Look at the Bible, though. New Testament. Written between 80, 40, and 100. The earliest copy we have is from 125. A fragment of the book of John. There's only 25 years between... Uh, that original writing and the earliest copy we have. And look at how many manuscripts we have. If you include fragments, we have over 24,000. And those are all over the place uh, geographically. There's a wide range. And we can, take, uh, we can take a manuscript from way over here and then go way over here and compare them, and they're pretty darn close. Now, there's, there's some differences. Um, but they're usually, it's like a misspelled word or something like that. Usually pretty minor. And those that are bad, we throw out. Uh, so these 24,000 represent good ones, okay? What do you guys think about that? Have you ever heard this before? Is this new to anybody? It's new to you? Okay. You've seen this? Okay, good. This is a really good tool, because I'll tell you what, nobody knows this. If you sit down to study with somebody, uh, and, they, and they throw this at you, which this is just good to show to anybody, uh, we know that the New Testament we have today is the New Testament they had back then. And so what's written there, it's what we got, right? You guys got any other questions? Anybody, anybody? Well, what about the Old Testament? That's right, yeah. The Old Testament? Um, well, I mentioned earlier, the Old Testament, uh, the earliest Hebrew copy we had of the Old Testament was from 900 or 800 A.D. Um, but then when they found this, the Dead Sea Scrolls back in the 40s, they found copies from like 200 B.C. and, and some even earlier than that. Um, and it's the same. It's the same Old Testament. And the reason that we don't have a whole bunch of um, more copies, old ones of the Old Testament, is because... Uh, these guys, whenever uh, they would make a copy, they would burn the old ones because they didn't want the letters to get faded and they didn't want anybody to misunderstand what the Word of God was saying. And there were special classes of Jews called the Masorites, and there was another class, I can't remember what they were called, but I know the Masorites, but when they were copying a scroll, they would come in and they had like a special room set up with all these special tools and special candles and everything, and then they had a separate room set up with a bathtub. And they would go and they would like, uh, they had this cleansing ritual that they had to go through before they could even go in the room where the scroll was. And they had these special prayers that they had to say before they would go in there. And then when they went in there, um, they had some more prayers that they had to say. And they had to sit down and they had to go through this special cleaning process for all the utensils they were going to use, all the pens and everything. And then they would write very, very slowly and deliberately as they were copying one scroll to another. And every time they had to write the word Yahweh, which is the Hebrew word for God, they had to stop what they were doing. They had to go and kneel down and go through this special ritual and then get back up and go sit back down. Um, and, and then they could write the word Yahweh. And so if the word Yahweh was on there like 20 times, they just had to do that every time. Um, and if they had to say the word Elohim, which is another Hebrew word for God, uh, they had to actually go back into the other room and go through the bathtub again. And then come in and go through all the everything again. And so they took it pretty seriously. Um, and then 
they had guys, that, and I may have Yahweh and Elohim mixed up the rituals, but anyway, uh, they would have guys come in after them, and they would check every single letter, and they would check, like, everything, and if there were more than two errors on the scroll, they would throw the whole thing out. And we're talking about copying a lot of words, right? So it was a pretty big deal if they had to throw one out. And then they would just burn the old ones because they didn't want anybody to, to, to miss, you know, mess it up. So that's why we don't have a whole bunch of the Old Testament. But the, that's, why, that's also why the Dead Sea Scroll find was such a big deal because we just don't have any because they burned them. Anybody else? Yeah? Uh, yesterday in this class of year, um, Matthew was talking about proving outside of the Bible, mm -hmm. how to prove someone the resurrection happens. Mm -hmm. we, we concluded that's a big head thing. Mm -hmm. We said we kind of need to remember the heart. Mm -hmm. In your experience, is this more heart-focused? Uh, I mean, what I'm saying is start with Matthew, move into this. Have you had anybody not? Um, I don't know how somebody doesn't fall on the ground in tears after reading the story of Christ. So I'm just curious for experience. I'm not a hard person. I don't like emotions. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I tend to resonate more with the heady types. Um, I don't like people. <laughs> it's really hard for me to stand up here and talk to you guys. I'm going to have to go in a room by myself for a while in a minute. Um, actually, I'm just kidding. I like most of you. Um, what was your question again? <laughs> Does this engage the heart more than head? Have you, have you had anybody not be? I mean, I don't know how you can come away from this story and not realize I've got to be. I think it depends on the person, Cam. Okay. I, I think some people are hard-hearted and some people aren't. Okay. I think some people are ready to receive the message and some people... You know, maybe it was their time to receive the message, and it's going to have to wear on for a while. Um, it just depends on the person, man. I don't see how anybody, if they really are ingesting the story and believing it, if you can tell it in such a way. And this is another reason I hate using outlines, because I, I don't like, I, I like to just sit down and talk with someone and have a conversation. Um, if you can just get somebody to understand and believe the story, I don't see how it can't touch your heart, unless you're disheartened. I saw a hand up. Yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to respond to that. I think it, it matters most how you present it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I could I could sit here and, and read the Gospel of John completely monotone and make it sound more if yeah. I wanted to. And, I mean, it, you could do anything. You could do that with it. You could read something that is boring and make it sound exciting. Yeah. If you're yeah. a hard in it, then you can make it a hard thing, whether it's Mackie's study or this study or anything. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's exactly right here. If you're passionate about it, that passion tends to be contagious, right? Yeah. Okay. I think this is great for people who aren't um, in that place where the heart is ready to accept the message because um, Josh McCall said at the beginning of his book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and this always stuck with me because it's so true that the heart can't embrace what the mind rejects as false. Yeah. So some people really do need that credibility yeah. established. Yeah. Yeah, and this isn't like the first study I would use with someone, uh, unless they just didn't believe that you could trust the Bible. Um, and, and you know, it wouldn't, it would come out much differently in a conversation than it would with me sitting up here lecturing to you guys. Um, but I, I've really seen this be a faith builder. I mean, I've seen, I've had people like tear up 
when they read Daniel 2 and I explain to them what it means. Because they're like, oh my gosh, I can believe this. That means so much more, you know? And, and all these hopes that they wanted to have, they just couldn't because they didn't bring themselves to believe. And so this is really something that I found very, very helpful. Anybody else? Yes, sir. I appreciate you saying yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is old school, uh, sort of, because all I can share is old school. But, uh, you know, the, the, the Holy Spirit is involved in the gospel. That's exactly right. So it's not really the human element that is as important as, as the God element is. Yeah. And that is that people hear the story of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection for your sins. He died for you. And you stop to realize he died for you. And let people process that. Now, it may take this great study you've just shared, and I appreciate it a bunch. Uh, it is a faith builder, even for an old man. Uh, who's your daddy? But, uh, <laughs> I don't know if you want to spread that around here. <laughs> something that, uh, that you will take and that you will use and that will be useful to you. Uh, and if there's anything else I can help you with, uh, just come and talk to me. I'm pretty approachable. Thank you guys.